We start today with what's been leading most of the newscasts and, of course, made a lot of headlines over the weekend. Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev winning the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race and issuing a challenge to the Prime Minister almost right away when he met with his caucus today. So I'm issuing a challenge to Justin Trudeau today. If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister, if you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors, none. All right, friendly crowd, of course. Friendly crowd, of course, there with Pierre Polyev speaking. He also criticized Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh and the NDP Liberal Alliance in Parliament. We as Conservatives are always happy to work with any party to collaborate and extend and advance the interests of Canadians. We are. But there will be no compromise on this point. Conservatives will not support any new tax increases, and we will fight tooth and nail to stop the coalition from introducing any. There you go. A couple of comments making the rounds this afternoon on Pierre from Pierre Polyev, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Are you surprised that he won? Are you surprised that he won so candidly? I am. I had no idea he would finish first in 330 of the 338 ridings in this country. On the prairies, of course, slam dunk for Pierre Polyev. You know, corners of the country, of course. But in the Toronto area, Montreal, Vancouver area, I thought Jean Charest would take those, those ridings for sure. But here we are with Pierre Polyev finishing first in 330 of the 338 ridings in the country. Six ridings in Quebec and two in Ontario were won by Jean Charest. That's it. Nobody else even making a blip on the radar. For some perspective this afternoon, joined by Jason Ribeiro. Jason, of course, a public affairs commentator. Jason, thank you so much for being here today. Always a pleasure, Ted. Yeah, I love chatting with you, Jason. I got to get your, your initial reaction off the top. Were you as surprised as me that he won so, you know, easily in so many ridings across the country? You know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I try and not be in the, in the predictions business, but, but when <laughs> I, you know, in, in March when uh, Jean Charest first announced and was making the rounds in, in Calgary, I, I made a statement that has, has sort of stuck with me throughout, which is, that the current moment, not just in the Conservative Party, but in the country, is starting to be of a populist slant. Yeah. And that is very difficult to suppress, and it cannot be ignored. And so, no, I, I was not surprised. I'm sure, you know, we could quibble if we did predictions about how many ridings Pierre would have won. But there was no roll-up for any of the sort of more centrist or progressive conservative leaders. He was doing a, a hell of a job at, you know, building a coalition of, you know, potentially non-voters who, who haven't not only voted CPC, but maybe haven't voted for a political party before. He was doing a lot of the things that signaled to me a very, very strong 
first ballot win. And then because of the point system, you were able to break it down um, by riding. But I, I wasn't overly surprised by the results on Saturday. Especially when you when you look back to, you know, the photographs and the video of all the, you know, town hall style meetings that Pierre was holding, right? It just seemed to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it didn't matter where he was going, you know, downtown Toronto, or it could be, you know, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, right? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what he nailed very effectively was a, a sort of focus on the knowledge translation around economics. And when he got too cute and when he was misinformed, like on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, he certainly uh, got called out on it uh, by a lot of folks. But on the everyday issues of, of housing, on effective tax rates, on these long form videos that he was doing, he was able to speak to, I think, an anxiety that has existed not just uh, prior to the pandemic, but certainly since the pandemic, as we, we try and get our footing um, in terms of emerging out of it. And I heard a lot of pundits say, look, these rallies don't mean anything. You need to sell memberships. But if you're able to both digitally target through these long form videos, potential members, and then able to get a huge chunk of them into a room where you can potentially sign them up as well or get yeah. their emails or their phone numbers. I, I didn't understand why folks were discounting that that was a momentum builder, that that was a show of confidence and strength that would attract more people to the Polyev camp. Uh, not surprising to, to me in, in the least, and I think has rewritten some rules about how people are going to go about campaigning in the future. Yeah, I, I think you're bang on with that, Jason, for sure. I'm just focusing in a little bit on the memberships and and, uh, and more specific, more you know, importantly, uh, I would argue, you know, raising money, the cash, right? He apparently raised about $8.3 million from 55,000 donors, uh, $4.6 million by Pierre Polyev alone. That's what the Conservative Party of Canada raised. So $4.6 million, so more than half, was just Pierre compared to all the other candidates. And you compare that to Trudeau, he raised about $2 million during his 2013 leadership bid campaign for the Liberal Party of Canada. So Pierre certainly has the money behind him too, you know? Certainly, and, and I think, look, a lot of the tools and uh, methods of engagement have changed uh, since, uh, you know, Mr. Sunny Ways first emerged true, true. On, the, on the political scene. Uh, but yes, this is a strong showing, you know, from the memberships he's sold to the money he's raised. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to not, you know, give credit where, where credit is due. I think that the, he has, you know, certainly opened him up, uh, himself up to criticism about how he's gone about that engagement. Some of the things that he said that, you know, are not just kind of uh, whipping up populist sentiment, but are, you know, threatening democratic norms or challenging steady institutions that we need to work for us. And we don't need more people mistrusting as we try and, you know, build this country stronger. Um, so he's opened himself up to some some criticisms there that will will play out in a in the long run towards a general election or maybe even a, a, a snap one. But uh, he has, you know, rewritten the rules around fundraising, digital engagement. Now he's got to build an architecture that supports all of those ridings, that supports all of his new caucus members. And one of the biggest challenges I, I think he'll face is how does he scale this Polyev model to all of the people in his, uh, in his party who are going to be on a ballot? Do, do, the, do the same tools translate? 
are are there going to be those who go along to get along or are we going to see a little bit of a schism of folks who who don't want to or feel that you know what maybe i don't run for re-election this time around there'll be some key decisions to make and his caucus meeting today i think was important on that front yeah yeah for sure for sure i mean yeah that is a big a big a big kind of flag to be kind of either raised or lower depending on your perspective right you have to get the big buy-in from absolutely everyone within your party right jason yeah, and and look, you know, he's 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 playing a strong hand right now. Right now, yeah. he has the membership, and so you know, uh, conservative MPs and and potential nominees in the future will have to make a choice. Um, it's the same kind of choice that uh, you know other jurisdictions around the world are making when you have a very sort of um, you know charismatic leader, for for lack of a, a better word, who has a grip on you know the everyday folks and the everyday members, but they they're staking positions or a style or a tone even that are an affront, maybe even their, their policy statements on the institutions like the Bank of Canada and the like, you know, if they're taking those positions that, that just don't gel with who you are as a candidate and how you want to serve, you know, do you hang it up or, or do you go ahead? And, and you know, what, what, what are you willing to sacrifice to be able to, to make that happen? So they have a lot of uh, runway, I think, to make all of those decisions. He'll enjoy, I think, a little bit of a bit of a honeymoon effect but uh again very very strong victory at the federal level yeah was it ever for indeed indeed uh do you expect his policy focus to change at all or is he still going to go after you know the uh the the air quotes everyday uh canadian and talking about you know the cost of living and talking about you know the price to fill your gas tank and you know to gas up your car as he puts it do you think he's going to keep hammering down down those messages yeah i think there will be a central theme of you know the you know, more ideologically skewed economic policy, but yeah. but he's got to do this at scale now. You yeah. know, he's never been fully responsible uh, for a team. He's never been fully responsible at scale, um, you know, outside of politics for, for managing a team and uh, making the concessions necessary. Now, the good thing is, is he has such a strong mandate that he could chart a direction for the entire party and for all of the MPs and future MPs and just say, hey, get along or get run over. Um, he may not have to make as many concessions as an Aaron O'Toole did, as an Andrew Scheer did. So in, in terms of the policy focus, I do see him not sort of moderating his more ideologically skewed view of, of economics. And he said, you know, in past, there is no grand pivot to come. I, I am who I am. And so I, I think that's going to be key. But again, you know, one of the challenges I, I think he's going to face is he's made some very big promises for action. And he's made it on a number of fronts, you know, from, from the federal perspective, you know, his commitments on housing have been a lot of rhetoric, but he's going to have to set some targets. He's going to, you know, have to potentially allocate some funds, create a shadow budget. Is he, you know, going to be comfortable once he gets into the details with how few levers the federal government actually has? Or is he going to take the opposite approach and say, well, if I'm prime minister, I will hold the hammer. And even though if I don't hold the levers, I will hold the hammer that's, that ensures that provincial governments and municipalities actually get this done and I'll withhold their funding if they do. He's going to have to choose what what mix of governance style he's going to use um, with not a lot of federal levers to, to make an impact in the areas he's defined in this leadership campaign. Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. Jason, appreciate your insight as always. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Ted. Uh, right back at you. Have a great evening, my friend.
You too. All right, good stuff. That's uh, Jason Ribeiro. Jason, of course, is a political commentator, uh, public affairs commentator. We've had him on the show many, many times, kind of getting into the analysis of be it leadership races, be it campaign policy, whatever it happens to be. Work series here on The Drive. This time, every day, all this week, a feature to help ease the pain, so to speak, as this is the first real full work week where everyone is back at it. The kids are in school, post-secondary students are in full-time classes, you're sitting behind the desk or whatever it happens to be that you do for a living. All those kids' activities are kicking up into full gear once again. Yeah, life is back to as, air quotes, normal as it can be. So all this week, we're focusing on... So ways for you to kind of ease the pain, right? And I thought a fun way to start this off is to play a clip from a movie that's about work that every time I re-watch it almost brings me to the tears. I like it so much. Did I tell you that Harkin tricked me into having a drink at 8 o'clock this morning? Unless your boss isn't sexually harassing you. Let's see if this thing is working. Oh, I can make out our little friend right there. Stop it. Ooh, Shabbat Shalom. Somebody's circumcised. You know, yours doesn't sound that bad. We need to trim some of the fat. What do you mean by trim the fat? I want you to fire the fat people. You can start with large Marge. Marge, can you come in here, please? What? Uh, horrible bosses. The first one is so, so, so good. If you want to laugh, watch it. I don't know where it's being streamed right now, but if you can find it, please give yourself an hour and a half to kind of laugh and that type of thing. Well, this week, Dave McIver, our on-air contributor, is focusing on, as people return to the office in greater and greater numbers, what are some of the challenges employers and employees are facing and what can be done to ease the transition back to work? As I mentioned, here's our on-air contributor, Dave McIver. last two and a half years, many people have moved from their office to their home office, adapting to many challenges of navigating the work they do through a global pandemic. As employees start returning to the office in greater numbers, what are some of the challenges that they are facing? Dr. Duigu Gullerson is an assistant professor of human resources management at York University. She explains. The research published within the last year uh, shows us that transmission of COVID is still a big concern for employees. Uh, especially for those who had experienced COVID from the first hand or, or in their closed networks. Um, another important challenge or concern for employees is actually the loss of autonomy. So right now, um, employees have some degree of freedom while working from home uh, on uh, how they manage their time, how they man manage their work, or how they you know, attend to family responsibilities. So return to work might mean giving up such freedom. So um, that's why it might be one of the concerns. Um, but I think a, an important one is the stress that comes with readjustment. So um, like it took employees for months or, or even years uh, to get used to working from home. And um, many of them have just found their ways that work for them. And, and they learned how to you know, function well, how to feel comfortable working from home. And now, for getting all of these newly required habits and routines and developing new strategies might be, might be stressful for them. 
we don't talk about this much, but health research also anticipates that uh, regaining tolerance to the physical demands is, is a big concern for employees. So for example, like dealing with the, the demands of long commutes or using uncomfortable office furniture, office chair, um, inability to lie down when they needed a quick rest or um, getting used to the, the noise around them can be all additional sources of anxiety for, for people returning to the office. While employees are facing some challenges, Annie Dormuth, the Alberta Provincial Affairs Director for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, says the employers are facing challenges as well. For those for those businesses that uh, primarily operate on office, I would have to say work-life, uh, definitely hearing from a lot of business owners, um, more and more looking toward that hybrid approach of uh, working from home and uh, also, you know, maybe coming into the office one or two times a week simply to maintain those uh, team working connections and that kind of atmosphere. Are we seeing pros and cons to that hybrid model? Well, definitely some pros and cons. I mean, uh, a lot of business owners report that um, simply for recruitment, a lot of uh, employees or prospective employees are looking for, again, that flexibility of work from home and the office type of style. Um, those businesses that went completely work from home, um, they do report that, you know, there is that loss of kind of team building uh, connection that a lot of uh, employees do want to maintain that. And that is why a lot of them are looking toward that hybrid model. While Dr. Gullerson hasn't come across any research in how this affects age demographics, she does say there are different groups that could be impacted by the stresses in returning to work. The research tells us that women, um, employees with unresolved childcare responsibilities, um, employees living in multi-generational households, and employees with disabilities are quite reluctant to, to going back to offices. Um, it is ironic indeed, because uh, some of these groups like women or like caregiving employees, these groups were also the ones who reported negative consequences of working from home. So this tells me that maybe regardless of the place of work, it might be the, the swift and big changes that could affect the, the attitudes of these equity-seeking groups. So what can be done to ease the stresses of the workers who are returning to the office on a more regular basis? So to ease the process, I think employers might perhaps can provide a clear and a, and a positive picture of what, what the work life will be like after return to the office. Um, they can revise their like work-friendly policies to, to address those concerns related to the return to office. And um, our research highlights the importance of involvement in decisions, asking employees input about, about the decisions. And, and another, uh, I think, think that can be done to find a middle ground is to provide flexible working arrangements still. For example, like communicating the organization's needs and, you know, why they need the, the employees in person, but leaving the decision up to the employees can be a health way to, to move forward, I think. And this way, employees show up when they need to, but they don't feel they are enforced. They, you know, they they buy in and they understand the reasons. Whether it be full-time back in the office or more of a hybrid model, communication between the employer and the employee will be key. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. All right, thank you, Dave. That's our honor contributor, of course. Cannabis retail outlets in Alberta. 
Think about the number of cannabis retail locations around you. There are four within a 10-minute walk of my house. And I, and I live central part of the city. But what about you? Some people have been texting and saying they have five, maybe six within a short walk from their home. What kind of rules are there against having a high number of stores? Are there any? Or is it something that the market is just going to have to work out? Craig Kolachuk joining me this afternoon to dig into this conversation. Craig's co-founder and owner of 13th Floor Cannabis in our city, uh, also has a location in Airdrie. Craig, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having you. Uh, hey, good uh, afternoon. Uh, good afternoon to you as well. Anecdotally, Craig, I mean, you're in the industry, so you pay very close attention to your competitors. Are there too many cannabis locations, do you think? Well, yeah, I would say having a cannabis store in every strip mall, uh, you know, we're, we've reached saturation. Yeah. Um, as an industry, uh, I think we're we're facing a serious uh, headwind here, and there's shakeups happening. Um and uh, at the end of the day, there's going to be stores that have no choice but to shut down um, just because the market's not there. The market's not there, yeah. Are, have, have you noticed a difference, like a drop in sales, Craig, at all? Or You know, not so much a drop in sales and traffic, but a, a, a drop in um, basket size because there's ah. a, a price war going on and it's a race to the bottom. So. Um, our, you know, our average basket size would be forty-five, fifty dollars. Now it's thirty-five, forty dollars. Mm. Um, so, um, with any retail business, um, location is key to success. So, um, we have some really good locations, but um, yeah, we are noticing uh, you know lots of traffic in some cases, but more uh, just pricing has become so competitive that uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the day, our sales have dropped a bit. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, what kind of rules are there, Craig, that yourself as an owner and, and you know, your, your colleagues, your competitors have to follow? Are there, like, are there rules about, you know, distance to another location or is it just kind of, if you can get it approved by the city, you know, go for it? Well, in Calgary and Edmonton, they do have a 300-meter buffer okay. uh, between stores. But uh, the rest of the province is basically the Wild West, and you can have one on every street corner. Um, but um, at, as you alluded to, you know, in most communities, there's four or five locations, and it's just we keep slicing the, pl- the, the pie um, too much, and, and uh, the capture area isn't there. And so um, I think a lot of people thought it was cool to, to be in this young industry and, and open up a cannabis shop. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to make money to, to survive. So, um, yeah, I think there is going to be some contraction here yeah. uh, in the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah, it, it sounds like it for sure. I mean, are there are there other areas? Uh, like, I mean, the market, I'm just thinking that the, the industry is what? We're about four years in now, right? Since, yeah. since the legalized consumption. Um, are there other areas ahead of us that have kind of gone through this kind of expansion and contraction? Well, uh, I always compare ourselves to our, our neighbors to the south there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, basically the density of storefronts vastly exceeds the mature recreation U.S. market. Um, if you compare ourselves to, to Colorado that has similar demographics as Alberta, yeah. um, Alberta could sustain roughly 450 retail locations. 
and we're currently over 750. Wow. So, you know, that's, you could easily see 30 to 40% yeah. of us retailers, uh, you know, out of business. Yeah. And, and, and did Colorado go through this kind of a uh, bit of a, you know, kind of a ebb and flow type thing? You know, I, they have a little more restrictions on how many they can have in each county. I so see. I think it, it, it is, there is a cap on it. Um, I also have been down to California quite a few times and, you know, there's some real big areas that only have, you know, two stores and they're super busy. They're lined up. Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly the details if they, if they've capped them or what, but I know, um, yeah, there's definitely a discrepancy on a per capita basis from Alberta compared to uh, the States and, and across Canada for that matter. Um, you know, we had the Alberta advantage initially when, when our province led the country in both sales and, and number of, of licensed locations, but uh, that's now, you know, far ex- exceeded um, the right numbers. And, and unfortunately, uh, AGLC is letting the market decide the number of locations. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. What so so? How do you how do you separate yourself from the pack, Craig, to to make sure that you know uh, the customer kind of sees you, knows you, shops at your location compared to the other people? Yeah, good question. Well, you know, when we we built 13th floor, our, our vision was to to build a chain of stylish um, retail operations that uh, were warm, you know, an inviting atmosphere for a broad demographic. Um, you know, I wanted my parents to feel comfortable yeah. coming in the store. Um, we didn't do anything with the window coverings. Uh, so you can see, through, you know, we've done a really good job um, on our decor. We got like a 1920s uh, hotel lobby with a speakeasy type vintage <laughs> vibe. Cool, cool. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's warm, inviting, and we've spent a lot of time hiring. Our, our, our bud tenders are, are really our... Our, our biggest asset and so we pride ourselves on having a superior menu uh, a lot of craft uh, product and fantastic customer service yeah yeah and yeah so we're, we're chasing that niche kind of premium market and um yeah it's we're building a, a fantastic brand and uh we've really done a good job i think uh establishing uh, some loyalty with with our customer base yeah well, good luck to you, Craig, and uh, hopefully the market kind of sorts itself out here in the next 12 months, as you're saying. Hey, I appreciate your interest and your time, and, and thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a great evening, Craig. Okay, take care. You too as well. You too as well. That's uh, th- that's Craig Kolachuk. Uh, he's the co-owner and founder of, uh, or co-founder, excuse me, and owner of 13th Floor Cannabis. Um, three locations, uh, two in the city of Calgary, one in Airdrie. Um, but yeah, you can, I mean, wow. Okay. Um, the numbers, if you look at it, there's apparently a pretty good detailed, uh, a data firm that looks into this called cannabis benchmarks. Um, it, and they looked at the Canadian retail cannabis market and they, they apparently looked and concluded that Alberta has too many. It's interesting. You know what the market will bear. It will have to shake it out. It's interesting what Craig's doing to kind of separate himself with that uh, that vintage vibe and the kind of niche craft products that he's selling to customers and, you know, making, making it comfortable enough that his parents can walk into the stores. Yeah, interesting.